Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, everyone. I'm Sue from the South and Mind Room Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh. And I'm recording an episode of Psychological, which is our little podcast where I phone various developmental psychologists to have a chat with them about their recent work. We're just trying to um, provide some um, engagement opportunities for students who are maybe working from home at the moment during the COVID-19 lockdown and make a little contribution to the sort of broader conversations about children's uh, well-being and development and learning through uh, research evidence. Today's psychological is with Sarah Rose from the University of Staffordshire and she's going to be talking to me about a paper um, called Children's Creative Intentions, Where Do the Ideas for Their Drawings Come From? Which is a really interesting question. So hello Sarah, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, good afternoon, Lucy. Um, uh, so, Sarah, tell me, what did you discover about where children's ideas for their drawings come from? Oh, well, what we found is that children's ideas for their drawings come from lots of different things and lots of different places. And um, we found that lots of children obviously talk about things that they've seen or places that they've been as being the sources of ideas for their drawings. Um, but children do also talk about their feelings and their emotions and imaginative ideas that they have. And it's really interesting, actually, because quite often in their drawings, they talk about the way how these things combine and they might have started drawing something that they'd experienced, but then they added an imaginary element into it. I remember one uh, little girl who was telling me about drawing her pet rabbit, but then she added in that he was a wild rabbit now and in a forest full of carrots. Sounded wonderful. <laughs> oh, lovely. Um, so you've been studying kind of children's creative development for a while, right? So mm. why don't you tell me a bit about um, what led you to this kind of specific question of, of where children get their creative ideas from? Well, I sort of started my career really looking at the development of children's drawing abilities and things that influence and impact um, the development of, of children's drawings. And I mean, there's been kind of over a hundred years of research now into the development of, of children's drawings. And, you know, we, we know that many children draw tadpole-like uh, figures to represent humans when they're toddlers, um, those characteristic kind of Mr. Men, uh, Little Miss pictures where the mm. body and the head are one shape and you know there's been lots of interesting kind of that developmental sequencing how children develop their, their drawing skills and abilities there's also been lots of interest of course into what children's drawings might mean you know are they potentially a window into the child's mind that that type mm. of thing and mm. I, I was really interested in this area and I did some research looking at um, particular children who'd had different schooling experiences and um, the impact that those schooling experiences might have on, on their drawing ability. So, um, you know, there's already been research done looking at uh, drawings of children from China compared to drawings of children from Western countries, for example. Mm. Um, but it was difficult in those studies to really kind of unpick whether it was cultural differences that we were seeing in the drawings or whether it was, you know, the way that they'd been taught that was maybe um, influencing the drawings. And one of the things that sort of frustrated me about this area of research, I suppose, is that 
people didn't seem to talk to the children very much. Mm-hmm. And a drawing is just part of the process. The marks on the page are just a part of the process. And I suppose, you know, collecting data for some of these studies that I'd been involved with previously, I'd been really captivated by, you know, the four-year-old child who would tell me this marvellous thing that they were drawing. And then I'd take the drawing away with me to analyse and the drawing was just squiggles. <laughs> um, and, you know, it wasn't very representational or it was very a very poor representation of this amazing story um, that told me. So, yes, um, rather roundabout way of explaining um, why I was really interested to look at, you know, well, what what comes almost before the drawing, before the pen touches the paper? What Where do their ideas come from? And um, as part of this, this research, I was also collecting data from children who attended two different types of schools. So they were all children um, in Britain, um, but some of them attended our mainstream schools teaching the national curriculum. And some of them um, attended Steiner Waldorf schools, um, which teach a curriculum that's much more sort of focused on the expressive arts and, and creativity. And so one of the sort of subsidiary research questions in this paper was not just, you know, where do they get their ideas from, but um, what kind of is the educational influence? Is there an educational influence? You know, these children that are growing up in these similar cultures, do they have the same or, or different ideas um, of what to draw, really? Oh, this is so fascinating. And I love that that observation about, you know, the children telling you that they're drawing this absolutely wonderful thing, but but not really being a parent on the page. I remember that many times as a parent, my children bringing me this thing and that, that struggle as a parent of wanting to say, oh, what a wonderful picture of something. But you, you, you're sort of forced to say, what, what is it, darling? Yeah. <laughs> You've got no absolutely, idea. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is it. I mean, I, I became a parent after doing that research. But yeah, when I think of my experiences now with a parent of two, two young children, I, I do just think that, I don't know, as developmental researchers who've been interested in children's drawings, we've we forgot about the child sometimes yeah. and just looked at the drawings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So tell me more about how you collected those data then. You know, how did you capture the kind of child creative process? Mm. So it was lots of fun, really. I got to um, visit lots of different schools um, all over the country, actually, because we were looking at children from these two different school types. Um, it required a little bit of uh, traipsing around the Great British Isles. Um, and I visited schools and um, children had volunteered and parents had given consent and all that sort of thing for their child to take part in the research. And um, I collected data with each child individually. And the children were between the ages of 6 and 16, so a really broad age oh, range. Um, and basically... I sat there and I asked the child to to draw a picture. Um, I told them obviously a little bit about the research, etc. But I, you know, really emphasised that they could draw a picture of whatever they wanted. Um, I'd like it to be, a, you know, one of their good drawings. Um, but I'd like it to be a picture of whatever they wanted it to be. And as the child sort of, you know, got ready to, to begin to draw, we, we gave them a selection of pencils, etc. I'd say, oh, you know, what, what are you thinking about drawing? And we'd have a little bit of a chat about what they were thinking about drawing as they started to draw. And then while they were actually drawing, I just got to really sit there and, and observe and record everything that they did say. Um, but I didn't really want to interfere with the drawing because it's very easy to, you know, influence a child, even just by the sort of 
the, the non-verbal feedback that you might mm. give them about what mm. they're drawing, etc. So I let the child draw, and then once the child had completed their drawing, um, we basically had another nice little conversation about, you know, what what they'd drawn, um, what was in the picture, um, etc. So the the data that was collected, I did have the children's drawings, but they weren't actually analysed as part of this particular project. Um, mm. It was the interview transcripts that that were analysed, and it was a very relaxed or semi structured um, informal interview which was really just focused around um, them telling me about their ideas of what they were going to draw and then them telling me about what what they had drawn and it was interesting how you know their ideas had often developed and changed through the process of creating the drawing and you know children would say to me well I was going to draw this but then it kind of looked a bit more like this or I, I was going to draw this and then it turned turned into this mm. Um, so it was really nice to have been able to kind of capture that before and that after version of, a, of events mm-hmm. of, of what had inspired them for their drawings. Mm-hmm. And so I imagine that was a very kind of rich and quite large data set, right? Um, you know, uh, all those kind of transcripts, presumably. So how yeah. did you go about, you know, sort of um, processing and analysing that information? You're, you're right. It was a it was a wonderfully rich data set, and being children, sometimes they went off on on wonderful tangents <laughs> that weren't always quite so relevant to our our research question. But yeah, we had a, a lot of written um, transcripts to to go through, and um, we analysed them in in two different ways. Actually, our initial approach um, was we carried out qualitative thematic analysis, mm-hmm. and we didn't really want to take. Um, too much of an interpretist approach when we were doing that. We were really just looking at, you know, what the child had said about what what they'd drawn and and, and where that idea had come from. Um, And after lots of scribbling in the margins and highlighting and underlining, what we were trying to sort of look for were common themes, things that, you know, lots of children kind of um, uh, talked about. And with that goal, really, of trying to summarize this very large uh, body of, of words that have been collected in the transcripts into something that we could kind of, um, yeah, just share with others in a short, succinct um, fashion about, you know, where children had, had got their ideas for their drawing from. Um, so that was one approach that we used, the thematic analysis. Um, but we also had this sort of subsidiary research question um, of wanting to compare the ideas of, of children from two different schools. And the thematic analysis was was great and let us really um, address the data with a very open mind so that those themes that uh, that we identified really came from the data rather than any kind of pre-existing idea we might have. Um, But but what those themes then enabled us to do is we actually then um, narrowed those down further to create some kind of categories so we could basically do a a quantitative content analysis so that then we could just go through each transcript and ignore some of the lovely richness of the dialogue and just say, okay, within this transcript, is there evidence that the child drew uh, things that they that were representational, that they'd seen or things that were in their memory? Is there evidence that they drew things from imagination? And, and is there evidence whether they, they drew things based on expression of feeling and emotion? Mm-hmm. And so we could then have, um, you know, not, I don't really want to use the word score. It's not quite the appropriate word to use, but, um, you know, 
assign numbers basically um, <laughs> in terms of how many children had, had mentioned these different things and then we could then look at you know which school they went to and, and do that comparison. And so so this is a big question then, did you find a difference <laughs> between those, those two types of schools? Were those children um, generating their creative ideas from different sources or in different ways? We maybe didn't find as much difference as we'd initially anticipated. So mm. we found that there was no difference in the frequency and how often um, they got ideas from things that they'd seen or things that they'd remembered, those sort of realistic drawings. And um, there was also no difference in terms of the number of drawings where they'd had imaginative ideas. The, mm. the area where we did find a difference, though, was about expression, a feeling and emotion that the pupils that attended the Steiner schools, the Steiner Waldorf schools, were more, significantly more likely to talk about those things in their interviews. Um, mm. And we found that quite interesting. It was kind of a finding that we had anticipated. Um, but I don't know, there's part of me that's curious about whether they just were more comfortable or confident talking about feelings and emotions, whether they were more used to their teachers asking them about feelings and emotions. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, they've got to bear in mind that this data was collected in that school setting, that school context. Mm -hmm. So although mm -hmm. I, I wasn't a teacher, they might have been speaking to me in a way that they thought they should speak to a teacher or something. Mm. And it, mm. you know when you have that little niggle in your mind about the interpretations yeah. you're making from, from your data. So I, I always a little careful when I talk about this research to say that those children talked about those ideas significantly more. Um, you know, I didn't have a, a direct question. I didn't say, so is there anything in your drawing that represents a, a feeling or emotion? Mm. <laughs> and mm. there's part of me that wonders whether maybe maybe the difference is about the way they talk about it rather mm. than actually where the ideas came from, that maybe some of the National Curriculum School pupils did have those ideas but just didn't mention that they'd coloured that bit in blue because that's how they were feeling or, or whatever, mm. um, whereas mm. those comments definitely were there more frequently. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's some evidence that it, it certainly makes a difference um, to what children say about their, their drawings and their ideas for the drawings. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting, isn't it? So so I suppose you might hypothesize from that that if you'd seen those same children at home, perhaps there wouldn't have been that difference, you know, in a setting where perhaps, you know, all children are encouraged to talk about feelings, you know, that might have kind yeah. of eliminated the the difference. I mean, maybe, Sue, or, or maybe, you know, because it's always got that kind of confounding variable as well that um, parents choose to send their child... Yeah to yeah. a Steiner school or to a national curriculum school. So there is that maybe possibility that the parents might also talk to their children yeah. differently. Um, I, I don't know. I suppose in some ways maybe the, the only way around it could be to ask a more direct question about, you know, almost to ask the child, in your drawing, is there ideas that you've got from your imagination? Is there ideas? But then you struggle with that issue of you almost asking them very leading questions, aren't you? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think, you know, it's one of those areas that it's probably going to be quite difficult um, mm -hmm. to really know what the cause of that finding mm -hmm. is. Um, but that, that just makes it all the more interesting, doesn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I'm thinking about what we can sort of learn from this 
research. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things I'm wondering about, based on that sort of observation about the, the sort of explicit reference to kind of feelings and emotions when when creating drawings, you know, what what are your thoughts about the sort of therapeutic value of drawing or, or other forms of creative expression? You know, I mean, setting aside, you know, sort of randomized controlled trials of music therapy mm. or whatever, you know, do you do you feel that more informal creativity has a kind of important role for emotional growth or something? This is a really good question, isn't it? And it's so timely at the moment, you know, especially mm-hmm. with, with children having recently, you know, in the process of returning to classrooms, etc. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that that opportunity to express themselves through creativity is really important. And I think mm-hmm. what we have to recognise uh, is that different children will want to express their feelings and emotions in different ways. Mm-hmm. And that I think... Um, the, the creative outlets for doing that are absolutely vital. They should be part of what we're offering, but they shouldn't be the only thing that that we're mm. offering. But mm. you know, there's something very easy to offer, and there's you know, um, talking to to people who who are working as psychology practitioners in in roles or people just working in direct contact with children, you know, using drawings as kind of an, an informal relaxation, opening to a conversation task. Um, there's lots of evidence there that children enjoy drawing. Children generally find drawing relaxing. Um, I've carried out some sort of survey research with, with children and you know children talk about enjoying art at school, finding art at school relaxing, that it's a lesson where they can be themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are lots of, of positives about it. And I think you know, obviously we need a rich and, and balanced curriculum for, for children. And within that, we need to make sure that the arts aren't getting squeezed out and that mm. the arts do include that opportunity for expression and imagination and creativity. That it isn't, mm. um, you know, the, the national curriculum, for example, you know, tries to do all those things, but there is quite a lot of focus and when you talk to the teachers delivering the national curriculum, particularly in primary schools, um, traditionally there has been quite a bit of focus on drawing things representationally, getting drawings mm-hmm. looking accurate. And mm-hmm. that's only part of drawing. You know, clearly when we talk to children about their drawings, they really are drawing on imagination and expression as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's such a good observation. I'm so glad you, you shared that because... Um, it's my, I mean, I'm going back to my anecdotal um, <laughs> mum stories, but there's a there's an after-school art club that has started up near us, so it's currently on hold because of the lockdown, of course. Mm. But um, I was asking my daughter if she would like to go, and she said, well, only if they're not going to tell me what to draw. Oh, <laughs> lovely, yes. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, yes, it's so true, you know, and yeah. it's really important that we have space for for that kind of um, self-expression, isn't it? And it's yeah. not always, you know, questing towards a sort of skill, you know, which yeah. is, you know, just a it, bit it, of it, but not the mm, whole thing. Yeah. No, that's it. And it was interesting, actually, collecting this data because I was asking children in a school setting to draw me a picture of anything they wanted. And mm. one of the 
the theme to actually came out of our analysis was to do with uncertainty and, and not being sure because they, they, they weren't really sure what they wanted to draw or they didn't know or they, they'd say things like, well, I, I'll start with some doodling because almost that, that I suppose that this was particularly among the older children. You know, we had children yeah. taking part up to the age of 16 and I think that they, many of them were so used into that school environment of being told what to draw that actually yeah. it was a little bit oh oh this is a bit unusual I'm not quite sure how yeah. to respond to this person that's told me I can draw anything um, <laughs> and yet you know we know that young children absolutely you know you give them a pen and a paper and you can't stop them drawing they just yeah. start yeah. And, and they want to continue so it's interesting isn't it and you know is that somebody interested in you know the development of children's drawings as well you know there's that period in childhood where children draw prolifically Mm. And and then something happens, and they and they don't draw as much. And is it that they don't they don't need drawing? Is it that maybe they've developed other ways of communicating, other pastimes, mm. other activities, or is it that actually maybe drawing would still be beneficial to them, but it's just um, being squeezed out by other mm. things? Um, I don't. Mm. I, I definitely can't answer that question, but I, I it's one that I mull on sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That is fascinating. Um, well, Sarah, before we draw to a close, um, I think there are probably some psychology students and PhD students and early career researchers who might be listening. So I wanted to ask if you had any um, thoughts or life experience to impart uh, to them based on um, based on your career so far. Oh, that's such an interesting question, Sue. I never imagined that I would be an academic. I, I, I remember growing up and the only thing I was very clear about was I didn't want to be a teacher. Um, and I don't know whether being an academic, whether I fulfilled that or not quite. <laughs> um, but I never, I didn't really plan to do a PhD. And I, I've got here really by a series of coincidences and by not having to fix the plan, you know, I had an idea about things I didn't want to do, but I really, I suppose I sort of tried to make the most of, of opportunities. And I, I found myself in a job that I absolutely love, but I'd never, you know, it was never part of the plan. Um, and I think, you know, I think sometimes when I'm having tutorials with my undergraduate students and I'm asking them, you know, and what are your plans for when you graduate? And sometimes it's okay to not have a plan or to have a very open plan where we look for opportunities and we we see where paths lead us. Um, and, you know, my, my PhD took me just over seven years. I was working alongside, sometimes part-time, sometimes full-time, sometimes both full-time and part-time. Um, a child found their way into my life at that point as well. I had a baby. I got married. Um, you know, and I think it's also that feeling yeah. that, you know, when, when you're doing a PhD, sometimes it's very easy to compare yourself to others and the progress that they might be making and, and you, maybe that you feel you are or aren't making. And, and try not to do that. Try and think about it as a, a journey, a journey that hopefully, you know, you enjoy of course there's you know those bits when you might be up doing data analysis late at night and you're thinking oh I didn't really want to be here now or you're folding lots and lots and lots of letters to send to people mind you maybe COVID's meant we're relying more on email aren't we now but I can remember you know collecting data in schools 
and you need to prepare the consent information and letters to go out and the school tells you there's 700 and something children and your heart sinks slightly. <laughs> um, you know, those those are all, all part of it. But yeah, you know, keep keep going, keep keep your options open and, and don't worry if you haven't got a fixed plan. Oh, well, that's an absolutely lovely and very reassuring thing for people to hear, especially right now, I'm sure, when oh, I expect it feels like it's, it's pretty impossible to plan for the future because yeah. you're not quite sure what it's going to look like yet. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that connection there, Sue, but absolutely, mm. at the moment, it's the most unpredictable time, isn't it? So, yes, mm. be, be kind to yourself and, and you know, keep, keep options open and don't worry. I, you know, I just want to think plans are just there to be changed, really. <laughs> mm. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for your time and for your wisdom and for talking to me about that really fascinating piece of research. Just love it. Um, Anyone who is listening, you will be able to find out more about Sarah's work by following the links in the podcast description, in your podcast app or on our Buzzsprout feed. And it just remains for me to say thank you so much and goodbye to Sarah. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye. Thanks, Sue. Bye. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly. <laughs>